chapter 9 today. Chapters 9 and 10, as I mentioned last week, discuss and describe the journey of Jesus with, with his disciples to Jerusalem. He's on his way to the cross. Peter has made the confession that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus has told, them, told all the disciples and the crowd exactly what that means, that he is a Christ who has come to suffer, to die, and to rise again. He's also told them as his disciples what it means if they want to follow him, that it's going to involve self-denial, it's going to involve taking up their cross, it's going to involve renouncing their own agenda and plan and committing to follow him. So on the way to the cross, Jesus begins to describe for his disciples the way of the cross. In other words, as Jesus heads towards his coming death on the cross, he explains what it means to be a disciple. Today we turn to Mark chapter 9 and see what it means to be a disciple, what it means to follow Jesus. And we're going to see that if we are going to follow Jesus, it's going to mean a life of sacrifice and service to him. The title of my sermon this morning is Mere Discipleship. Mere Discipleship. And I want us to look at three things in this text this morning, three ways in which Jesus calls us to follow him. Three ways in which Jesus calls us to follow him. Here's the first one. Number one, following Jesus means listening to him. Following Jesus means listening to him. Now this passage begins with the account of the transfiguration of Jesus. This is when Jesus ascends a tall mountain, and reveals his glory, reveals his godness, reveals his deity, reveals that he is no mere human teacher to them. He reveals, in fact, that he is God. He has the Father's stamp of approval on him. Verse 1 begins, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. This this phrase from Jesus, this sentence, has confused commentators and Christians for a while. What exactly is Jesus referring to when he says, some of you who are standing here won't see, won't die until you see the kingdom come in power? Is he talking about the literal messianic triumph? The literal coming of the Christ in which all of God's enemies will be put away and Christ will reign in the earth? Is that what he's talking about? Or is he talking about the resurrection? Is he just talking about the fact that these disciples are going to witness his glorious resurrection from the dead? Perhaps. However, I don't think that Mark is trying to play any tricks on us. He wants us to see the transfiguration as the fulfillment of Jesus' prediction here. In fact, Matthew does the exact same thing. On the heels of this announcement from Jesus that some of you will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God come in power, he wants us to say, oh, the transfiguration. This is a demonstration of the kingdom coming in power. Now, I say that because of what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 19. Um, hold your finger, Mark 9, would you go with me there quickly to 1 Peter chapter 1. Actually, 2 Peter chapter 1. And notice what Peter who was there that day when he saw the transfiguration, writes about this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 19. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, power and coming. Same word that is used by Mark in Mark 9.1, some of you will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God when it has come in power. Power and coming. So what does Peter think of when he thinks of the power and coming of the kingdom? Look at the next verse. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, he thinks the transfiguration. For when, we had, when he had received glory and honor from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. There you go. So he's remembering, how could you forget an experience like this, right? He's remembering this great transfiguration 
and refers to it as the kingdom coming in power. Now, there are three reasons in this account from Mark chapter 9, verse 2 to 13, and I won't read it again since Brandon read it for us, of why we should be listening to Jesus. When I said following Jesus involves listening to him, this is the primary reason that the transfiguration took place, was in order to tell the disciples that what they had just heard about Jesus being a crucified Messiah, God is now going to say, you need to listen to him. Put away your preconceived ideas of who this Messiah is and listen to what he is saying. Listen to what he's saying about being crucified. Listen to what he's saying about suffering and being rejected and being killed. Listen to what he's saying about rising from the dead. And listen to what he's saying about what it means to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. Hear this. Hear him. So three reasons to listen to Jesus. The first reason is because of who Jesus is. Right, We see that in chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, you're going to hear Exodus imagery here if, you remember, if, you, if you're familiar with your Bible. Remember, Mark, the main, the main paradigm that the gospel writers have for understanding, the, 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 understanding Jesus is the Exodus. In fact, that God's people are in exile, God's people are in bondage, and... There is going to be a greater prophet who's going to come and deliver them. And this imagery in 9, 2 through 13, the whole count of the transfiguration, is just shot through with Exodus imagery. Six days going up to the mountain. Uh, on a high mountain, a cloud descends. Immediately when they come down from the mountain, they meet opposition. I mean, this is clear. that Mark is trying to, to demonstrate that Jesus is the greater Moses, that he is the one that you need to listen to. God himself put the stamp on Moses, but he never said to Moses, this is my beloved son, listen to him. But he puts that stamp right on the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is the greater Moses. He's also the one to whom all the scriptures are pointing. Verse 4, he, and, and along with him there appeared Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now I think it's a little bit too rigid to say Elijah represents the prophets, Moses represents the law. In fact, Elijah and Moses, both, what they are is they're two predominant figures that represent the Old Testament and the promises concerning the Messiah. And here you have both Moses and Elijah on both sides of Jesus, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter's initial response is equality. Let's get three tenths for all of them. And God the Father steps through and says, no, not equality, supremacy of Jesus Christ. Listen to him. So all, your heroes, the ones you have looked to, Jesus is greater than Abraham. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Elijah. Listen to him. So it's not only all the scriptures are pointing to their fulfillment in this one who has finally come and he has just revealed his glory to them. He, has, he was just the, you know, have you, you've seen the light bulbs that you take out of the box, and you haven't quite put it, in the, put it in the socket yet to turn it on. Well, that Jesus is the light bulb out of the package. Nothing significant, nothing great. But what happens at the transfiguration is that he gets plugged into the socket, for lack of a better illustration. He, he gets the brightness of who he is becomes unveiled and revealed to who they really are. Because when he came into the earth, he did not abandon his deity. He didn't give up his godhood. He veiled his glory. He looked as a humble, marginalized, Galilean peasant who walked on the earth. No, he's not that now. He is the reigning king and all of his glory revealed for them. And they are terrified. And then not only should we listen to Jesus because of who he really is but, and because of what the Bible, the, the fact that all of Scripture points to him, but also that God the Father places his stamp of approval on him. Now, if God speaks and says, you need to listen to this guy, that's a pretty good stamp of approval. That is a pretty strong recommendation. We all have to get letters of recommendation, right, from time to time for jobs or whatever, going to 
going to college, we have to get recommendations or applying for jobs. Well, give me some references. And you're real careful about the references that you give, aren't you? You want to be. You don't want to just recommend, some, well, I, you know, this guy, uh, I stole something from him one time, so I guess I'll go ahead and put that. No, we want, we want to find the best possible references who are going to speak the best word. What higher reference can you get than God himself? God himself speaks and says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Now, to whom are you listening for the answers to life's greatest questions? Who are you consulting to get your answers? And what sort of references do they have? Think about that. Does Oprah have this reference? Does modern day talk radio have this reference? Does Glenn Beck have this reference? Pick your guy, pick your girl, pick your consultant. We all have them. You say, I'm myself. I, I, I follow my own answers. I, I get life's greatest questions answered right here because I believe what American writer Henry Miller said when he said this, no man is great enough or wise enough for any of us to surrender our destiny to. The only way in which anyone can lead us is to restore to us the belief in our guidance. You say, no man is great enough or wise enough for any of us to surrender our destiny to. Right, no man is, but God is. We shouldn't surrender the guidance of our lives to Jesus if he's just a man. But we better surrender our guidance to him if he's God. And he is. And not only that, God the Father gets behind him and says, yep. So let me tell you, let me ask you this question. How much time this week did you spend listening to Jesus? Seeking guidance from him, getting counsel from him, thinking in light of who he is and what he says. You cannot follow him and do that, and not do that. You have to listen to him. That is the burden of the transfiguration, is to prove to you that he is worth listening to. And now they come down the mountain, verse 9. They were coming down the mountain. He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had been risen from the dead. Jesus realized that this situation has opened a massive, massive misunderstanding. Because they just revealed the glory and power, and Peter's like, I mean, he just already forgot. It's like, okay, let's go ahead and set these tents up now. Let's get this kingdom in. Already forgetting. And he says, listen, these guys are still confused. How prone we are to misinterpret Scripture. I mean, if this is not patently clear from this passage, they are misinterpreting the Bible all over the place. They are missing the point, the main points. They hear Jesus himself teach it, and they still are struggling, which is why God the Father has to step in and say, listen, guys, I know you don't know everything right now, and you're still confused, and you're still foggy and fuzzy on a lot of this stuff, but listen, keep listening, keep listening to him. Because they keep questioning about what the resurrection means, and they, don't, they thought Elijah must come, and Jesus has to teach them all again. Wait, Elijah has come. He was John the Baptist. So he goes through this all over again. So following Jesus means listening to him. Number two, following Jesus means leaning on him. Following Jesus means listening to him. Number two, following Jesus means leaning on him. Verse 14 through 29. And when they came to the disciples, now this is just Peter, James, and John right there up on the mountain. They get the special show. And then now they come down and um, they get together with the other disciples who are at the base of the mountain and they see a great crowd and scribes arguing with them. Verse 15, immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Someone from the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he is a spirit that makes him mute. Now we see Jesus encountering a situation that he was all too familiar with, dealing with demonic possession and healing and those kinds of things. And he responds, I mean, this is a terrible situation, right? Mark, Mark gives great detail here. This is not common for Mark. This would be more common for Luke. 
Luke is the one who gives all the nitty-gritty details about the situation. And Mark really lets us in on what this young boy is, is struggling with. You see that in verse 18? The Spirit seizes him, throws him down, he foams and grinds his teeth and become rigid. I mean, it's like grand mal seizure. This is a serious seizure. And then the man says, I asked, I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they're not able. And so Jesus says, bring him to me. He throws, he, he calls, the Spirit recognizes Jesus, right? Verse 20, when the Spirit saw him, when he saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he threw him down, caused him to foam with the mouth, roll around, grind his teeth, all that. And then Jesus answers, asks a wonderful question of compassion. How long has this been happening to him? Isn't That's our Savior. That's the kind of compassion he has for people. He, he's drawing, he's, he's, he's identifying with this father's struggle. And he says, how long has it been happening? And he says, from childhood. And it's often tried to kill him. And then he says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And then Jesus responds, if you can. If you can. Anything is possible for him who believes. Now, let me just underline, anything is possible for him who believes in me. This is not Jesus putting his stamp on your great faith in yourself. Anything is possible for him who believes. Believe in yourself. You can do it. Anything is possible. No, he's saying anything is possible for him who believes in me, anyone who looks to me, anyone who depends on me, anyone who calls out to me. And then he says, I do believe, but help my unbelief. And then he rebukes him, delivers the boy. Of course, he thinks, I mean, everybody thinks he's dead because he's not moving. But then Jesus lifts him up. And then finally the disciples come and say, why couldn't we do that? And he says, in verse 29, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, what's Jesus teaching his disciples about what it means to follow him here? It means that we lean on him. We depend on him. We look to him. We listen to him, and we lean on him. We have already seen in Mark that whenever the disciples are separated from Jesus, they fall into crises. They get in trouble with faith. We saw it in Mark chapter 6. You don't have to turn there, but the account where Jesus is walking on the water, verse 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat, go before him to the other side, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray, and we know what happens after that. Jesus leaves them, and then they're panic-stricken. They're, they're, they're losing their minds in the boat in the face of the storm. Whenever the disciples are separated from Jesus, they fall into crises. And what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples here is that following me means leaning on me. I don't just call you. I don't just stand in the back and command you and say, do this, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. The disciples go out and like, yes, we're going to do that. We're standing at the base of the mountain. Jesus is up there again. We're going to fight the demonic world. We're going to take on sin. We're going to, def we're going to conquer in the name of Jesus. We're going to take the kingdom. We're going to start moving. And then they're hitting roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. We can't do this. We can't deliver this guy. You gave us power. And then Jesus is teaching his disciples that, of course, they can't do it, that they need him. Judson loves to help me around the house. That's a probably a toddler, two-year-old thing. Um, but And he he's eager to do things on his own. He does not like it when Daddy tries to step in and help him, especially when it comes to lifting heavy objects. Yesterday, um, some branches fell off of our tree in the backyard. Don't worry, Bo, not a big branch. It's just little things. Um, Bo's our landlord. So, Yesterday, some branches fell off of our tree in the backyard, and I told Judson that we were going to go outside and get them and pick them up and take them to the curb. And this, this was, of course, excited him. He's eager to go out and help. Um, but when he got down to the steps, he's unable to lift them, even though they're you know about, about this wide and this long. But still, for a little two-year-old, it's hard to lift. And it causes him to get frustrated. He's, but I'm trying to lean over and grab him and help him. And he's, no, Daddy, no. I, I do it. 
And he's finally, after he realizes he can't do it, he's like, Daddy, help us! So what he still needs to learn is that whenever I'm calling him to do something difficult, I don't intend to leave his side. What I'd like for him to say as soon as I give him a command is I'd like for him to assess the situation and immediately say, Daddy, help us? Not go down into uh, the situation and try to solve it on his own. And this is exactly what Jesus is calling his followers to do. When God gives us a command, when God gives us... um, describes for us what it means to follow him. He doesn't want us to hear his commands as an invitation to prove how much we can do on our own. He wants us to hear his commands as an invitation to call on him and seek help from him. And that's what I want. I I don't want my son... I knew he couldn't pick up that branch. God knows you can't live the Christian life on your own. And and I didn't say, come on, let's go downstairs and let, or let's go down the steps in the backyard and let's pick up the branches so that you can prove to Daddy that you can do it on your own. I want us to do this together. And this is exactly what Jesus is calling us to do. He's calling us to lean on Him, to to carry our unbelieving. Now, listen, some of you all condemn yourselves over and over again because you lack faith. Listen, you're supposed to lack faith in the Christian life. You're supposed to feel the pressure of unbelief. That's okay. What's not okay is what you do about it. I mean, if you're living the Christian life to any degree, if you're really engaging and living the Christian life as Christ calls you to live, you feel helpless all the time. The only reason we don't feel helpless is because we're really not living the Christian life the way we need to. We're not pushing into the kingdom of darkness. If we were, we'd feel need. We would feel need. We're, we're not put... I mean, the disciples, what are they doing? They are ministering to difficult people. If we were ministering to difficult people, we would feel need. So, God wants us to feel that need. He just doesn't want us to respond by saying, let's do it on our own. He wants us to respond by leaning on Him, looking to Him, calling on Him. Now, what does it mean to lean, to lean on something? Well, Josh Harris uh, gives a helpful summary. He's, he's quoting and commenting on Proverbs 3, 5. Familiar verse, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and what? Do not lean on your own understanding. So he says, the leaning described here isn't the shifting your, foot to one, or shifting your weight to one foot variety. It's not just that. It's not leaning to one side. Rather, it's the kind where you place all of your weight on something or someone so that they are holding you up and supporting you. It's like if Jonathan were to come up here right now and stand behind me and I was just to fall back. Either he catches me or I fall. There's no I'm not I'm I'm totally leaning completely all of my weight there. So here's the simple test, Josh says. You're truly leaning on something if you'd fall over if it wasn't there. Let me ask you this question. Are you living the Christian life in such a way that you would fall over if Christ weren't there? That's where God wants us to live. That is the blessed, happy life. It's a difficult life. It's a self-denying, cross-bearing life. But that's where God wants us, to lean all of, his weight, all of our weight on him in such a way that we'd fall over if he wasn't there. And let me, let me just fill you in. He'll be there all the time. So Josh concludes by saying, that's a picture of the kind of trust God wants us to have in him. Trusting the Lord with all your heart involves leaning on him in such a way that you're completely dependent on him. When we're leaning on God, we're going to feel off balance. He says, too often we want to trust God, but still be independent. We want to trust while feeling in control. We want to lean while standing on our own two feet, but that's not real trust, is it? It's feeling off balance. It's feeling weak. These are the feelings that in our pride we're prone to run from. And then he says this, and yet there's no better, no safer place to be leaning 
than on the everlasting arms of our loving Savior. So let me ask you a few questions. Are you leaning on Christ? How do you respond? Are you, or do you feel a perpetual need for him in your family, in your work, in your ministry, in your care and love for other people? Do you feel empty? Do you feel without resources? And are you responding in prayer, dependence, faith, trust, hope, confidence in him? That's how you know if you're leaning on Christ or not. Are you leaning in such a way that you would fall over if Christ wasn't there? If Christ just decided to disappear from your life tomorrow, would you fall over? How often do you feel off balance? How often do you feel a sense of your weakness and dependence? To the degree that you, and I say this, to the degree that you have a felt need for Christ, to that degree you are following Christ. To the degree that you have a felt need and sense of need for Christ, to that degree you are following Christ. I remember when I was in college and um, uh, David Burns, the man who discipled me, who I have a lot of respect for, and I, remember he, I don't remember a lot of what he said, but I remember this particular talk on walking by faith at one of the meetings that I was in. And I remember him saying, he just asked this question, he said, what has happened in your life recently that can only be explained because you trusted God? What, what has happened? It can only be explained because you trusted God and because God came through for you. He said, what is something in your life right now that, what are the things that you're doing in your life right now that only God can do? What are the, how are you, are you living in such a way that you perpetually feel like only God can do? If if God doesn't come through for me, I, I can't do this. Listen, we need to put ourselves in those kind of situations. We are going to grow, brothers and sisters, if we will put ourselves in situations like that, if we'll make ourselves uncomfortable. If, when you feel that sense of, ah, oh, I, I don't want to do this, I can't do this, see that as an invitation from Christ to you. That's exactly what it is. He's calling you to lean on Him, to trust Him, and to follow Him. This is what it means to follow Him. This man, this God-man, left heaven. Talk about giving up. Talk about leaning on God. He leaves everything He's known and trusts Himself completely to the care of His Father and becomes a man. And now He's saying to us, can't you get outside your comfort zone? Don't you know what I left? I left Heaven. So let's, and don't you think I'm going to take care of you? I know every temptation. I know temptations you don't even begin to understand. So lean on me. Trust me. I will be there for you. I will not let you down. Number three, following Jesus not only means listening to him, it not only means leaning on him, it means learning from him. Following Jesus means learning from him. And the big idea here is humility. That is the clear theme from verse 33 all the way to the end of the chapter. And I want to look at four things in closing here. Um, This is my last point about what we need to learn from Jesus. Four things in this text that we need to learn from Jesus. So we need to listen to him right now. We need to lean on him right now. And we need to learn from him right now. School is in session Discipleship 101, Christ is the teacher, as long as I'm correctly interpreting this passage. Christ is the teacher here, and I want you to hear him, listen to him, lean on him, respond when you feel like that's going to make me uncomfortable. I want you to hear that, and I want you to feel that, because discipleship is an uncomfortable reality, isn't it? Deny yourself, deny yourself, deny yourself. Here we go. Serving rather than being served. Verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. About who was the greatest. Now, if Jesus had made them privy to the transfiguration, They must be somebody. 
Peter, James, and John got to see Christ the way no one has ever seen him before. So they're arguing, and the disciples are probably maybe having this conversation. What makes you guys the three best? What makes you guys the ones that get to go up on the mountain? Why are you so special? And they're talking about, well, we're, we're the greatest. We don't know. They could have been talking about numbers. But a number of things have happened to think they're pretty significant. And Jesus sits down and has to have a little uh, counseling session with these guys again. And he said to them, if anyone would be first. So he's not condemning their desire to be great, is he? God wants you to be great. God wants, he, he appeals to our desire here to be first. We're competitive, aren't we? Don't you want to be first? And he's saying, here's the way. So he's not condemning the ambition. He's condemning the direction. The ambition is good. He said, you want to compete for something? Compete to be last. Compete to be last. Fight to be last of all. Serve as and be the servant of all, of everyone. You're the chief servant. You're the greatest in the kingdom. Now, that principle is on full display in this church. So I'm not coming to you condemning you as being a non-servant-hearted people. You are. Think about it with me for a minute. Think about the service that takes place in this church by God's grace and for God's glory. Think of the times you spend in nursery caring for children. Think of all the time, and you do it, and you don't get thanked by the parents when they show up. Think about that. You're serving, but you do it joyfully. You do it willingly. You do it eagerly. Think about those of you who prepare communion. Think about those who help breaking down tables and caring for those kind of, re those kind of practical realities. Think about all the time that Dwayne puts into the bulletin that we throw on the floor. The amount of time that's involved in serving us to give us announcement, to give us a direction for worship, to just help make our experience here a little more user-friendly. Think about all the, the, the work that goes into music for this church. The time that's spent in preparation and prayer and thought to try to build a set of songs that will serve you when you arrive here. Think of, and, and they do week after week after week after week, graciously, thankfully, joyfully. Think about all the hospitality and all the phone calls that take place. The serving of each other. The people that use their text messages and Facebook for encouraging other believers. Not just voicing their complaints about life. Who clean the building. This is sanctification 101. I mean, this is like you are the, you are the servant of all, literally. Who The AV team and the ushers who find seats for us and forsake their own. Who, the, the, the security guys and girls who walk this hallway during services just to make sure that we're safe. People who sit in overflow, not because they want to avoid people, but because they want to make room in here. Moving. We've had a lot of moves lately. The Lord has signed us up to discipleship and called us to more intense seasons. It's not always like this. Some, some, intense, some seasons are more intense. And Didn't you just get those emails? You're like, whoa, everybody's moving. Six, seven people, five at least, I think. And you just, oh, serving, 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 serving. And uh, the Fifth Street VBS is going to require a ton of volunteer work. And we have an opportunity again to be, to be just to enroll in Christ's school again and saying, I'm a disciple. This is what it means to be a disciple. This is why I have to deny myself and take up my cross and follow Him. And if I lose my life for the sake of VBS, I'll save it. I'll be so thankful I went. Painting groundskeeping, Sunday school teaching, gathering early for prayer. So many ways that we are served. We have no idea how much we are served because a small group of people meets at 8 a.m. to pray for our, our, our gathering. I have no doubt that that has a great bearing on what happens in our hearts through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God every Sunday morning. So serving, serving, serving. You are such a serving, generous people. And I just want to underscore that, that this is not something you're already doing. I'm just saying, let's get more competitive. 
let's work at being first at this, and let's bring others with us. Let's, let's keep this mentality that we, if we want to be first, we must be last of all and servant of all. So we are serving others rather than being served. That's one way that we are to learn from Jesus. The second way that we're to learn from Jesus is by welcoming those who are, quote, insignificant. Now, I hate using that term because there's no, there's no human being on the face of the earth who's insignificant. Like I said last week, we've never met a mortal. They are all eternal image bearers. And therefore, I, I, I use that term insignificant loosely. I mean the people who you just don't think a lot about. And we see that in verse 36. He took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me reaches, receives not me, receives not me, but him who sent me. So you not only receive the Son, you receive the Father too. When we welcome those, now the children in this society are the most insignificant. They weren't unloved, but they weren't seen as having a lot of significance to the overall society. They're dependent on everybody. And Jesus precisely does that. He uses that as an example. He calls them to serve, says, if you want to be first of all, be servant of all. And then he gives example, exhibit A. He calls this little kid to him and says, Welcome these kind. Is that what Jesus has been doing his whole ministry? Jesus is predominantly interested in the insignificant. He doesn't go to malls to do his evangelism. He doesn't go to Hollywood. He goes where there's need. He goes where broken lives are. He goes where poverty is. He goes where hunger is. He goes where loneliness is. He goes where discouragement is. So what about those we visit and those we welcome? What about those who come in and sit in our pews and say, I've never seen them before, but somebody else will greet them. As they walk right out those doors and say, some Christianity. We have got to welcome insignificant people. We have got to get around them and want to know them and befriend them. And that is what Jesus is saying here, receiving them, not just tolerating them, welcoming them into your life, into your home, into your family, into your sphere of relationships, just including them, wanting them to be a part of things. So welcoming the insignificant is another way. Another way is rejoicing in the success of others. So we, we learn from Jesus by uh, serving. We learn from him by welcoming the insignificant. And we learn from him what it means to be a disciple by rejoicing in the success of others. Look at verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. You see what they're saying here, right? They said, look, we see some people who are doing some things in your name that are not part of our club. They're not part of our tribe. They don't do everything the way we do them. They don't do church the way we do church necessarily. They don't. They certainly don't have their doctrine right on soteriology. They don't, they don't have everything right, but you know what? They're casting out demons in your name and they're not following us. And what does Jesus say to them? Don't stop him. Hear this, brothers and sisters. Don't stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. He says, in other words, it's going to have a good effect on them. You know, I'm, I can actually work in them. And when they actually do this in my name and I'm present, they'll be changed. For no one who's against us... or for. For the one who is not against us is for us. They're on our team. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Now listen to what J.C. Ryle says commenting on this passage. Here is a golden rule indeed, and one that human nature sorely needs and has too often forgotten. I think Ryle's got our attention. <laughs> Here's something we really, really need. 
men of all branches of Christ's church are apt to think no good can be done in the world unless it is done by their own party or denomination. They can't be doing good. They're not Reformed Baptist. They are, Ryle continues, they are so narrow-minded that they cannot conceive the possibility of working on any other pattern but that which they follow. They make an idol. Listen, this is idolatry. They make an idol out of their own particular ecclesiastical machinery and can see no merit in any other, or at least deficient merit. To this intolerant spirit, we owe some of the blackest pages of church history. Let us beware of the slightest inclination to stop and check others merely because they do not choose to adopt our plans or work by our side. Let us study the liberal, tolerant spirit which Jesus here recommends and be thankful for good works wherever and by whomever they are done. That is a word we need to hear. We can tend to be, and I put myself in this camp too, we can tend to be people who look at deficiencies and what needs to be corrected rather than what is right and being done that's, that's good and place the emphasis there. Jesus clearly puts the emphasis on what is good almost to the total ignoring of what's bad. Almost to the total ignoring of what's bad. So we rejoice in the success of others. In, in other words, we don't live and die by our own little kingdom. We recognize that God has people all over the place, and we want to link arms with them and love them and care about them. Yes, assuming they believe the gospel and live and love the Jesus who is Jesus. And there are, and every Christian is like that, if they're a Christian. So we can link arms with Christians. I'm not saying we all just huddle up in the same churches together. I'm not saying that. I'm saying this, there's a spirit here of tolerance and love and large-heartedness that Jesus is commending to his narrow disciples here. And we, are, we can be some narrow disciples sometimes. We can all be that way. Otherwise, this wouldn't be in the Bible. And he comes to us and says, listen, guys, they don't have to be following you. They don't have to be doing all the things you're doing to, to, to love me and follow me. So he re, he's trying to teach them to rejoice in the success of others. Finally, now here's where, as if Jesus hasn't been serious already, but he gets dead serious here and talks about sin. So, what do we learn from Jesus? We learn to, uh, to serve like him, to serve others, to welcome others, welcome the insignificant, rejoice in the success of others, and finally, eradicate sin from our lives. Get serious about the pursuit of personal holiness. Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, by little ones here, I think he has primary reference to those who were in verse 41. He's talking about fellow Christians who we tend to scoff at. He's saying, you can cause them to sin. And that would be better if a great millstone was hung around your neck and you were thrown into the depths of the sea. So be careful in how you relate to, to brothers and sisters. Be very careful about how you relate to a fellow Christian. Because they, I died for them, I care for them, and I want you to know that I'm dead serious about their well-being. Verse 43, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Jesus is dead serious here. We have got to have serious, dead serious warfare on sin in our lives. We've got to get radical, violent. Violent not with people, with ourselves, with sin. Denying ourselves, taking up our cross, follow him. That means denying ourselves. Denying the propensities of sin. If your right hand is causing you to sin, don't physically cut it off because if you do, you still got the left hand. That's not his point. His point is get serious, dead serious about dealing with the patterns of sin in your life because if you don't, what's the option? 
It's better for you to enter light, enter, enter, enter into heaven as a crippled, banged up, beat up, self-disciplined disciple than someone who was negligent, let sin get the upper hand, and you go to hell. He holds hell out as the other option here. So Jesus is not necessarily the Jesus we hear. Jesus talked about hell more than anybody. And he comes crystal clear here because he says hell three or four times. He's big on hell in this passage. Unquenchable fire. Worm does not die. Fire is not quenched. You will go there if you do not kill sin. If you do not take dead seriously my commands to cut it off, gouge it out, tear it away, you will go to hell. Now, let me conclude with some questions. How do we know if we're following Jesus? How do we know? Let me ask you some diagnostic questions. How much of your life is characterized by selfless, humble service of others in your family, in your church, in the workplace, and in the world? How much of your life right now is characterized by humble service? Now keep in mind, this discipleship is a process. I'm asking you if you are growing, if you are pursuing this, if you are being changed, not that you're the perfect servant. There's only one of those, and he's our Savior. How much of your life is characterized by selfless, humble service of others? Number two, how much of your life is characterized by welcoming the insignificant? How much time do we spend with those nobody wants to spend time with? How much time are we even willing to go down to Friends of Sinners? Are we even willing to to, to, to get to know people at Karenet? Are we even willing to, to venture down to Fish Street? Those kind of things. Or even with those in our own neighborhood that are just difficult to love. How much of your life is characterized by criticism of those who are outside of our tribe? See, when we only run in our own tribe, when we only stay within those whom we have total agreement with, we are never able to discern our own idols. But when we get outside of that, we're able to look and say, you know what, we do have some idolatry. How violent are you in dealing with the sin in your life? Are you quick to point out the sins of others and slow to deal with your own? Have you cuddled up in the bed with indwelling sin in your life? When was the last time you took a real radical step for sin? Whether it was calling a brother to get accountability or whether it was um, uh, confessing your sin to somebody, confessing a struggle, that's where it starts, confessing it acknowledging it, owning up to it. When was the last time you took some serious steps to eliminate a particular sin pattern or wage war on it? Now, let me conclude. I know I've said that three times. It's like pastoral rule number one. Quit saying conclude, conclude, conclude. But it is Father's Day. And uh, I didn't want you to think I forgot about that. Um, Let me conclude by giving you an encouragement that in light of all this stuff that Jesus calls him, remember, we follow a Jesus who has already saved us. We don't listen to Jesus, and we don't lean on Jesus, and we don't learn from Jesus. He's not an example to us. He's a Savior for us. So I want our posture to be that way. He already loves us. He's already committed to our everlasting good. He is already pursuing us with faithfulness and kindness and mercy and grace every day of our lives. So in that posture, remember this. God is my Father, and this is from Kevin DeYoung's book on the Heidelberg Catechism. God is my Father because of Christ his Son. The old liberal credo made much of the universal fatherhood of God. But as nice as it sounds, God is not the Father of all. He is God over all even though many do not worship him. And he's Lord over all, even though many do not submit to him. And in one sense, he may be called the father of all and that all people owe their existence to God. But in the deeper sense of the title, the way Jesus used it, God is not the father of all. He is only father to those who have Christ for their brother. We are children of God, not by right of human birth, but by virtue of divine adoption. It is those who receive Jesus and believe in his name who are given the right to be called children of God, children born not of the flesh, but of God. And he goes on. I read that this morning, and I thought, what 
a better meditation for Father's Day than on the fatherhood of God. God is the greatest of all fathers. If you're a father here today, your greatest need is the fatherhood of God. Your greatest need is to learn from your father. Fatherhood is what it is because God is a father to his people. And so I commend to you a new dad this morning. I commend to you um, a dad, if you already have this, uh, God the Father is your father through Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you that he's never going to leave you. He's adopted you into his family. And as you walk with your elder brother, as you walk with your Savior, who's your brother, wonder of wonders, as you walk with him, listen to him, lean on him, learn from him, to walk in humility before him, you will know blessing. You will know that to save your life is to lose it, but to lose your life is to save it. And you will know that your Father loves you, is committed to you, cares for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much this morning for being being a God of such compassion. We see it in the life of Jesus Christ, your Son. We see it flowing, oozing out of your own heart because he came to do your will. And when we see compassion in him, we know behind it is the compassion of you. And so we thank you that you sent him, that he has lived in our place, that he has died in our place, just as he said in this very text in Mark 9, as he reminded his disciples again, that he came to suffer, to be rejected, and to die. And we know why he did that. He had to suffer and be rejected and die because we cannot come to you without it. So we thank you for his payment for sin. We thank you that through faith in him, all of our sins, past, present, future, are washed away in his blood. No condemnation, entire peace with God. Adopted um, into your family and have a wonderful fatherly disposition from you to lean into and rest on and look to. Thank you for being our father. Thank you for um, this wonderful day that reminds us of the gift that our earthly fathers are to us, but ultimately the gift that you as our heavenly father, both in giving them to us and in being the perfect embodiment of all that it means to be a father, are to your children in Christ Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.